6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 9. Ruth and Boaz, another example of uh, the of the marriage. Boaz is the goal, the kinsman redeemer. Ruth is a Gentile bride. And Naomi is a type of Israel who is redeemed to the land and, and uh, as Ruth is purchased to be Boaz's bride. Interesting model of the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And, and uh, it is their fields that the shepherds assemble some centuries later to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Israel is the wife of yod or Jehovah, however you want to say it. Prominent idiom. And, and she's described as a harlot in Ezekiel 16. In fact, uh, a good part of the book of Hosea deals with that. And uh, she is viewed as widowed, a, the widowed harlot in Lamentations 1, Isaiah 54, and elsewhere. These idioms are being used to communicate some relationships here that are not what they should be. In fact, it's interesting that Mystery Babylon, the false harlot in Revelation, can brag, I'm no widow. What does she mean by that in chapter 18, verse 7? There's a whole study there. But perhaps the most dramatic example is one I've already alluded to, and that's Adam as a type of Christ. Christ has the, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's the last Adam. Adam was the first Adam. And Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. And I've anticipated that already by going through that a little bit. But Adam loved Eve so much that he knowingly chose to share her destiny. And because he did, you could say that he gave himself for her, which ended up finally in God's program to result in their redemption through their offspring. He chose to be made sin for her. And that's exactly what is said of Christ, the last Adam, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was made sin for us. Boy. Without which there would have been no Redeemer, no seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. And guys, do you love your wife that much? I challenge you with that. I challenge you with that. Gentile brides are used as types throughout the Bible. I made a list of these. I thought it was interesting. Adam and Eve, of course. Isaac and Rebekah. Joseph and Asenath in Egypt. Moses and Zipporah. Salmon and Rahab. Rahab the harlot was Salmon's wife. And she was the mother of Boaz, by the way. And of course, Boaz and Ruth are the classic examples here. It's interesting that each one of these have no death recorded. Now, incidentally, obviously, they did die. Don't misunderstand me here, but it's fascinating to me, especially since the way the, the rabbinical arguments made in uh, um, uh, Hebrews about Melchizedek had no end of days. He obviously did have an end of days, but the, the rabbi there is making a... Rabbi Paul is making a, an example that he had no birth and death recorded. He makes, a, he makes a logical argument out of that. Well, it's interesting that these brides are, have no death recorded. 
They obviously died, but it's interesting. They're not recorded. Anyway, the ancient Jewish marriages, Siddiquim, there's the engagement that was arranged with by the father, the ketubah, the covenant or the agreement. The bridegroom is then absent to you know, prepare the house as John 14 uh, presents Christ. But he comes back and takes, he typically comes back in the middle of the night to grab his bride for the marriage. And then we have the hoopah, the wedding ceremony, the seven-day celebration that celebrates the marriage. Understand the marriage of the lamb occurs in the father's house in Revelation 19. The wedding supper is, when is established in the kingdom when he goes back and establishes his kingdom. So there's two different events, interestingly enough. And does that unravel a lot of other problems? And, uh, but in any case, it's, the mystical union of the body of Christ is, is modeled here, if you will. Continuing in Ephesians 5, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. That's interesting. There's only two rules here for a happy marriage. Just two rules. Every one of you in particular. There's only two rules, one for each. For the wife, let your husband be in charge. Reverence your husband. For the husband, love your wife supremely. Supremely. Beyond all, everything else. Those are the two rules. It's so simple. <laughs> why, don't do, why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? Well, let's shift now to parents and children and employers and employees. Because these are all, strangely enough, related to all have to do with submission. Let's talk a little bit about broken families. You know, our national policies contribute to family instability and breakup. Divorce is the public acknowledgement of failure. It's been a problem since the 60s and after the Supreme Court outlawed mentioning God in schools is when everything starts to turn sour. Up till then, the divorce rate was less than 10 in 1,000. And then suddenly, it grows to twice that. The central limit theorem statistics, those kinds of ratios are usually very stable. This one doubles. That's a, very, that's a large change. And since 74, the, it, it, divorce exceeds death as the leading cause of family breakup. In 1990, one, one, one woman in four had a child unmarried. Half of all marriage now end in divorce. In Christians as well as the secular world, something's really wrong. Remarried couples are more likely to break up than couples in first marriages by 56%, by the way. Only one in four children in the 90s will eventually enter a stepfamily. Excuse me, one in four children shall eventually enter a stepfamily. And of course, Hollywood celebrates divorce and unwed motherhood. Federal policy celebrates social and sexual variance. In the post-war generation, 80% grew up in a family with two biological parents who were married to each other. 80% in that post-war generation had married biological parents. In 1980, less than 50% expect to spend their entire childhood in an intact family. An increasing number of children will experience family breakup two or even three times during their childhood. Scientific evidence demonstrates that children in disrupted families do worse than those of intact families. Six times more likely to be poor, 22% of one-parent families will experience poverty during childhood for seven years or more versus 2% of children of two-parent families. This was a summary, breakthrough summary of research back in 93 by uh, Barbara Whitehead. Children of single-parent families are three times as likely to have emotional behavioral problems, more likely to drop out of high school, get pregnant as teenagers, abuse drugs, and be in trouble with the law. Also higher risk for physical or sexual abuse. Less likely to be successful as adults, especially in love and in work. 
Harder time achieving intimacy in a relationship, forming a stable marriage, or even holding a steady job. Teen suicide rate has tripled. Juvenile crime has increased, become more violent. School performances continue to decline. And this, of course, goes on and on. The me generation, fewer than half of all adult Americans today regard the idea of sacrifice for others as a positive moral value. Wow. The adult quest for freedom, independence, and choice in family relationships conflicts with a child's development needs for stability, constancy, harmony, and permanence in family life. Welfare dependency depends, tends to be passed on from one generation to the next. The shocking aspect of our culture. Daughters of single parents are 53% more likely to marry as teenagers, 111% more likely to have children as teenagers. That's because there's many teenagers that have more than one child. 164% more likely to have premarital birth. 92% more likely to have dissolved their own marriages. Wow. Each divorce is the death of a small civilization. It inflicts wounds that never heal. Survey after survey demonstrates that Americans are less inclined than they were a generation ago to value sexual fidelity, lifelong marriage, and parenthood as worthwhile personal goals. Well, let's jump into chapter 6 and pick a few of these before we wrap it up here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey your parents in the Lord. Rebellious youth. Where did we go wrong? Well, we had children. <laughs> Obedience to the Lord, Colossians 3. Prophetic implications are also laid out in, in Romans 1 and uh, 2 Timothy 3. And by the way, in Israel, rule by the children was an indicator of degeneracy in Isaiah 3, interestingly enough. Children are not, are not supposed to be ruling the roost. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. It's a commandment. Well, we're not under the law. Yes, you are. Of this kind you are. But the righteousness of the law is still a revelation of the holiness of God, and the Holy Spirit enables us to practice that righteousness in our daily lives. Romans 8. An Israelite who persistently disobeyed his parents was not privileged to enjoy a long, stable life in the land of Israel. A clear example of this was Eli's sons. They were taken out of the picture. That it may be well with thee that thou mayest live long on the earth. Which is in the child's best interest? Obedience brings blessing, and they will escape much of the sin, danger, and so forth. Sin always robs us. Obedience always enriches us. Disobedience to parents is rebellion against God. You need to realize that. As ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ye fathers. Fathers are given the responsibility for government of the home. But it also means there should be no unreasonable demands, undue harshness, or constant nagging. Should be chastening, discipline for correction, admonition, warning, rebuke, and reproof, subduing the self-will that is renewing and saving a soul. In contrast to indulgence, which makes spiritual growth extremely difficult. Every time you indulge them, you block their growth. It's partially forbidden. David pampered Absalom. Eli failed to discipline his sons. That was disastrous. Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph with tragic results. The Board of Education is to be applied to the seat of learning, right? <laughs> the opposite of provoke is to encourage and keeping promises, not just physical needs, balanced growth intellectually, physically, socially, as well as spiritually. Nowhere in the Bible is the training of children assigned to agencies outside the home. That's a sobering insight. 
in contrast to the UN's rights of the child nonsense. Well, let's talk about employer-employee. This is a sensitive one for me. Just a, a footnote on slavery. Almost half of the 100 million people of the Roman Empire were slaves. The New Testament does not condemn slavery as such. Every true believer is a doulos of Christ. That's what the word cordelain really means, by the way. Heart of the all. Heart of the, the, the lifetime servant. Actually. Moral reformation versus forcible revolution is a thought that we could spend time on. I won't take it here because we're getting, running out of time. But the New Testament has more to say to slaves than it does to kings. That's interesting. Queen Elizabeth said she was saved by an M. She says in Colossians 1.26, it says not many wise. It doesn't say not any wise. It says not many wise, many noble are called. That was interesting insight. Paul was careful not to confuse the social system with the spiritual order within the church. He didn't fight slavery. He was, his focus was order in the church. I have a dear friend who had a fabulous ministry for quite a while that decided to be a tax protester, and he's serving time in prison now for fighting the wrong battles. He happened to be wrong about his approach, but even if he still thinks he's right, but that's not the point. He fought the wrong battles, and his ministry is a shambles because he's serving prison when he should be out there doing the fabulous job he was doing earlier. Anyway, getting back to the old time, uh, feudal peasants back in those days owed their land owners 25% of the fruits of their labors. Today, we work until July, at least, before we earn for ourselves. We pay about 60% of our income in our federal, state, and other taxes. And I haven't brought that up to date. I suspect it's even higher. It's certainly going to get higher. And so we must not get our kingdoms confused. Yet our stewardship of our mandate in a democracy, uh, we have a representative government that we're going to be held accountable for because they're our employees. And uh, we should be dealing with ballast, not bullets. But anyway, going on here. The worst kind of slavery, more pernicious than that of the Roman Empire, is prevalent today. The enslavement of the mind through the lies and deception of our schools and our media and so forth. The thought police that run our culture, where our media, our main media, deliberately lies and hides the truth from the people casting their ballots. By the way, only the power of the gospel can free us from that kind of slavery, and your prayer closet is more important, more powerful than your ballot box. But servants, so be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. There's a very, very key phrase here. I want you to... It says, obedience to masters according to the flesh, i.e. physical and mental, not spiritual or of conscience. As unto Christ, no distinction between secular and sacred. Whatever you're doing, if you're a drill press operator, you're doing that as you would to Christ. But there's another phrase here that may shock you to understand. In singleness of your heart... There are two relationships in the law. One is called an arm's-length relationship, and one is a fiduciary relationship. The arm's-length relationship is one where you owe your employer 60 minutes for every hour paid. Period. When you go home at 5, you are your own. There's also a different relationship called a fiduciary relationship, and the great tragedy within the Christian body is the failure to honor the sanctity of a commitment and, this, and, and to fail to understand that. I want to get the singleness of heart 
You don't owe your employer just 60 minutes for each hour paid. You are his fiduciary if you're a Christian. If you're a secular employee, 60 minutes for every hour paid. No problem. If you're a Christian employee, you owe him loyalty. There's a basic vocabulary, faithful. More required in stewards that a man be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Key verse. What do we mean by, what do we mean by faithful? Firmly adhering to duty of true fidelity. Loyal, true, of, to allegiance. Constant in the performance of duties or services. True to one's word. Honest. Loyal. Key words. In contra- now, we are, if we're Christians, we are the fiduciary of our employee. What does it mean by fiduciary? The relation existing when one person justifiably reposes confidence, faith, and reliance in another whose aid, advice, and protection is sought in some matter. That's like a... A, uh, a patient to a doctor, like a client to an attorney. Those are fiduciary relationships. The relationship existing when good conscience requires one to act at all times for the sole benefit and interests of another with loyalty to those interests, putting their interests ahead of your own. Attorney has to put his client's interests ahead of his own. A doctor needs to make his patient's interests ahead of his own. That's what the word fiduciary means. The relation by law existing between certain classes of persons as confidential advisors and the one advised, executors or administrators and legatees or heirs, corporate directors or officers. If you're, a, now, if you're a manager or a director of a corporation, you are a fiduciary of the owners of that corporation. Now I want to read you a couple of, of Supreme Court discussions on this. The requirements of fiduciary. Many forms of conduct permissible in the workaday world for those acting at arm's length are forbidden to those who are bound by fiduciary ties. A trustee is held as something stricter than the morals of the marketplace, not honestly alone, but the punctilio of an honor most sensitive is then the standard of their behavior. Justice Cardoza, Meinhardt versus Selman, famous Supreme Court decision. So he continues, as to this there has developed a tradition that is unbending and inveterate. Uncompromising rigidity has been the attitude of the courts of equity when petitioned to de- undermine the rule of an undivided loyalty by the, quote, disintegrating erosion of particular exceptions. Only thus has the level of conduct for fiduciaries been kept at a level higher than that trodden by the crowd. A director of a corporation is in the position of a fiduciary. He will not be permitted improperly to profit at the expense of this corporation. Undivided loyalty will ever be insisted upon. Personal gain will be denied to a director when it comes because he has taken a position adverse or in conflict with the best interests of his corporation. The fiduciary relationship imposes a duty to act in accordance with the highest standards which a man of finest sense of honor might impose upon himself. That's another Supreme Court decision. Deirdre Scheintag. I've been in a corporate boardroom for 30 years. I was on 12 public boards, and I can only recall once where we had to remove a director for a breach of fiduciary duty. I was in the full-time ministry 10 years, and we had to do it three times. One of my toughest adjustments was to realize that the ethics, I'm not talking morality and the other things, the ethics in the corporate boardrooms that I was in over 30 years was a far higher standard than I experienced when I joined professional full-time Christianity. Very, uh, mostly due to poor training. Not bad people, just not trained properly. 
While there's a lofty moral ideal implicit in this rule, this judge continues, it actually accomplishes a practical beneficent purpose. It recognized the frailty of human nature. It realized that where a man's immediate fortunes are concerned, he may sometimes be subject to a blindness, often intuitive and compulsive. This rule is designed, that on the one hand, to prevent clouded conception of the fidelity and a moral indifference to that blurs the vision, and on the other hand, to stimulate the most luminous critical sense and the finest exercise of judgment, uncontaminated by the dross of prejudice or divided allegiance or of self-interest. Again, Justice Intuck. Well, let's continue here, and we'll wrap it up. Not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Not just with diligence when the boss... Only when the boss is looking? No, because your boss is always looking. Slacking off when the boss is away is a form of dishonesty. A child asks his grandfather, can God see me all the time? A little nervous about that. He says, God loves you so much that he can't take his eyes off you. <laughs> I love that. With goodwill doing service as unto the Lord, not to men. A Christian can perform any good work as a ministry to Christ from the heart. Being a witness, in contrast to witnessing. Many, many of us are undercover Christians. Our neighbors, members of the family, don't even know we're sold out to a coming king. What if the master is overbearing, abusive, and unreasonable? Now you do this, as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Your wages that you're earning are just temporal. Your real rewards are from him, the big boss. The same shall he receive of the Lord. I love this little story. I'll throw it in here. An old missionary was returning from many years of sacrificial service in Africa. And on the same ship as it was landing in, in New York, President Theodore Roosevelt was returning from a big game hunt in Africa. When the ship docked, great crowds in the press were there to greet the president. The old missionary's wife walked off unnoticed, and made their way to a cheap hotel. And he, the missionary is really upset. That doesn't seem right. We gave our lives in Africa to win souls to Christ. And when we arrive home, there's nobody to greet us. The president shoots some animals and receives a royal welcome. The missionary complained. His wife straightened him out. He says, we're not home yet. I love that. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that, now here's the remark for the employers, ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master is also in heaven, neither is their respective persons with him. Masters should be fair, kind, and honest, because the same thing applies to them, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, more of it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now who is our ultimate fiduciary? We're being called to be a fiduciary. Who is our ultimate fiduciary? Christ himself. Put our interests ahead of his own? Wow. Now there's a glossary that's going to be part of the final exam for this little series. There's a number of words we throw around we may not have thought through very much. So let me just throw a few a little glossary up here. Conspiracy. That's planning and acting together secretly, especially for an unlawful or harmful purpose. That's what we mean when we use that term conspiracy. The word faithful, what does it mean? Firmly adhering to duty. Of true fidelity, loyal, true to allegiance, constant in the performance of duties or services, true to one's word, honest, loyal. Pretty straightforward. Fiduciary. Well, we've talked about that, but let's just summarize it. The relation existing when one person justifiably reposes confidence, faith, or a reliance on another, whose service and advice and protection is sought in some matter. 
the relation existing when, a good, when good conscience requires one to act at all times for the sole benefit and interest of another with loyalty to those interests. The relation by law existing between certain classes of persons as confidential advisors and the one advised and so on. The word fraud, what do we mean by that? The intentional deception to cause a person to give up property or some lawful right. What's embezzlement? Many of us are guilty and may not realize it. Embezzlement, the theft or act of fraudulently appropriating money or goods entrusted to one's care and management. That's, that can include stealing office supplies from work, whatever. Larceny is theft. The act of taking and carrying away the goods or personal property of another without his consent and with the intention of depriving him of it. Ah, there's an intent in regard there. Misfeasance, malfeasance, and nonfeasance. Those are important words. Misfeasance. Wrongdoing, a misdeed or trespass, specifically the doing of a lawful act in an unlawful manner so that there is an infringement on the rights of another or others. That also includes what we call malicious compliance in certain situations. Malfeasance, evil doing, ill conduct. The commission of some act which is positively unlawful, wrongful conduct that affects, interrupts, interferes with the performance of official duty. And when it's nonfeasance, a failure to perform a duty, an omission of an act which a person ought to do. Wow. Well, so much for this, our final session. We're going to now finish chapter 6 and the epistle next time going in our desperate warfare that you and I are engaged in. You and I are presently engaged in a warfare. Did you realize that? Are you equipped and prepared for that warfare? Or are you a sitting duck? You're going to study the armor of God next time, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 18, and also Paul's closing comments. And supplementally, if you have time, I suggest you read Daniel chapter 10 in preparation for next time. Praise God. Well, let's close for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for these lessons. We pray, Father, that you would... Through your Holy Spirit, help us to be more pleasing in your sight. Help us to grow in grace and knowledge of him with whom we have to do. As we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ephesians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us at 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.